Welcome to Objection to the Rule, your Sunday afternoon news hour on Radio Free Brooklyn. We are recording this episode on Friday, July 2nd, and it will begin airing on Sunday, July 4th. A happy Independence Day for anyone who is celebrating. Uh, My name is Reese Robinson, and I'm on air today with my co-host, Jasmine Smith. Emily is out this week celebrating her birthday. So happy birthday, Emily. And how's it going, Jasmine? Yeah, happy belated birthday to Emily when she hears this. Uh, I'm not I'm not bad. Um it's there's been a much needed cool down. It was really really hot. Um which I typically like, but it was a bit much and like straining the electricity grid, so it's cooling off now, which is nice. Yeah, I agree. Supposed to get down to the 60s something or something tomorrow, so. Okay, now that's a little bit too much. <laughs> I know in rain. Hopefully we don't rain out the whole weekend, but yeah, the seasonal transitions have been really weird. Yeah, but other than that, you know, nothing really new with me, just taking it easy, you know, trying to um stay calm, stay cool and focused. Yeah, absolutely. All right. So on this week's episode, we will be discussing Brooklyn public defenders trying to unionize a Tokyo man twice evicted from the Olympics, the Justice Department pausing federal executions, and some good news about California public schools providing lunch and breakfast for all students. So we're going to go ahead and kick off our episode today with our local news story. Jasmine, you're up. Okay, so um, this information comes from a New York Daily News article written by Noah Goldberg. It came out on June the 30th. And the title is Brooklyn Public Defenders Seek to Form Union After Failed Bid in 2016. And it goes on to say, public defenders and other staff are seeking to form a union at the Brooklyn Defender Services, organizers told the Daily News on Wednesday. The nonprofit organization, which provides legal defense to Brooklynites who can't afford private counsel, employs about 400 people who would be eligible for the union, including public defenders, lawyers and family practice, investigators, paralegals, and social workers. There's been a sea change within the nonprofit public defense world such that almost every public defender organization in the city has unionized, said Murtaza Hussein, 31, a lawyer in uh, Brooklyn Defender Services Family Defense Practice since 2017. Um, And here on out, they refer to Brooklyn Defender Services as BDS, so I'm going to use that abbreviation. BDS was formed in 1996 after then-Mayor Rudy Giuliani broke a 1994 strike at the Legal Aid Society, which at that time had a monopoly on public defense in the city. Giuliani contracted with new organizations that did not have unions, like BDS, Bronx Defenders, and Queens Law Associates. But over the years, the newer groups have unionized, with BDS left as one of the few non-union public defense organizations in the city, along with the New York County Defender Services and two smaller appellate defender groups. BDS is the second biggest public defender organization in the city with 220 attorneys. That's 68 fewer attorneys than legal aid has in Brooklyn, but more than any other group in the city. A key component of the union drive is the full support of all staffers, organizers told the news. 
It's a wall-to-wall effort this time, not just attorneys, but social workers, advocates, paralegals, all of us coming to the effort together, said Aaron Sternlieb, 24, who helps BDS clients find housing during criminal or family cases. She's hoping a union could fight for, quote, reasonable caseload caps and equitable time off, among other things. Organizers with the prospective union, which would join the Association of Legal Aid Attorneys, said they have a pretty overwhelming majority, though they declined to give a specific percentage. A 2016 drive for a union at BDS failed after management pushed back against it, organizers said. The lawyers and staff are seeking voluntary recognition from management. Lisa Schriebersdorf, founder and executive director of BDS, said she plans to recognize the union if they have the requisite number of cards signed. If my staff believes they want to be in in a union, I think they deserve me to work with them, Schriebersdorf told the news, adding she has no plan to force them to a National Labor Relations Board vote. Um, So, yeah, I mean, we normally end with the good news, but I thought that this was a fairly positive um, local story. Um, It seems that they're on the right track to get representation for not just the lawyers, but the other people that um, work under uh, this particular organization, which is a good sign in my opinion. Yeah, I agree. I definitely think that there should be a union for public defenders. They do some of the hardest heavy lifting, really, the way they inherit these cases and they go hard for people that they don't really get a chance to uh, even get to know. You know, so they definitely deport, uh, deserve some support. And this is uh, great that they're they're starting to work together and, you know, form this union. I think it can only have good outcomes. Yeah, like they really are, you know, um, anybody that listens to the show, like, you know, like I, I'm fairly like cynical and like critical of it's not just like police, but like a lot of things in our justice system that are really imbalanced and unfair. And one of the things, you know, just if you don't have a lot of money, like money talks, so if you barely have any money or you don't have any at all, you know, even if a public defender like wants to do the right thing, if they have like an excessive number of cases where they can't really give their client Um, the full attention that the case deserves, like, what do you think is then going to happen to the client? You know, like, they're, they're not likely to get a really fair shake, like, if they're overworked, like, they have too many cases, um, or, you know, you're not being paid equitably for the amount of work that you're doing. So, yeah, it's, um, they are, like, very important, you know, making sure that everyone that needs one is able to have some kind of representation. So, it's a shame that Giuliani union busted the way he did back in the day, but hopefully, you know, that trend can be reversed. Exactly. Cause they really do, um, you know, they really have to be on top of it too. Like the way that they have to govern themselves in order to help people who would not have any help at all. You know, it's a high stress job. Um, and definitely something that doesn't get enough recognition because the average person that's caught up in the legal system, most of the time they can't really afford representation. Yeah. So they definitely need some support. And I, I really hope that this works out. 
And yeah, you're absolutely right. And on that note, there's um there's a documentary that came out eight years ago in 2013, and it's called Gideon's Army. Um, and it follows these people who are public defenders. I believe they're in Tennessee, or no, they're just they're in the South, so they're not all in the same place. So the title Gideon's Army comes from Gideon versus Wainwright which is a case that requires that indigent criminal defendants be offered counsel at trial. So like it made it so that, you know, even if you don't have, you can't afford representation, someone is going to be provided for you. Like that's the origin of that law is Gideon versus Rain White, Wayne Wright. So if you have the time, I would suggest that you watch it. It's very, it's very moving and it really gives you a sense of like what public defenders are often up against as far as, you know, their caseloads, um, defending people who, you know, it's not always like, oh, my client is innocent. Sometimes they're very much not innocent right. or they might right. scare you or they've done some stuff that you think is horrible, but, you know, you still have to do your job to the best of your ability for that person. Um, and, you know, how much support people who go into that work need. Uh, so it's available for streaming for free on Tubi, T-U-B-I. Uh, and you can pay to rent it on like Amazon Prime, uh, Vudu on YouTube. So, but if you want to see it for free, you can watch it on Tubi. Awesome. Thank you for that. Um, I actually frequent this show called All Rise. I don't know if you've ever heard of it. Um, I have heard of it. Yeah, I haven't seen it. Okay, it's a really great show about a, I guess they would call her kind of a liberal judge um, set up in L.A. and the what happens in the courtroom with all the public defenders, with the people who come in. And it really gives an inside like track of what that life is like. You know, I know it's made for television, of course, but, you know, even in that, that sense, like the amount of caseloads and the amount of people they have to help and be objective it's really, it's, it's really a labor of love when you think about it. So um, a lot of people consider it, you know, the lower total end of the totem pole in the law profession. But I really think it's one of those things that if we didn't have it, what the hell would be happening to people out here? You know, like, yeah, it would go from worse to worse because it's already difficult. And like you have people that are pressured to cop a plea or to not really fight or you know give up like that's happening now so if you didn't even have the little bit we have now it right. would definitely be way worse exactly so all right thank you so much that was a great story we're gonna go ahead and jump right into our first music break today so the first track comes from the amazing missy elliott who recently celebrated a 50th Happy birthday, birthday missy. I know Missy at 50, like <laughs> it's such a thing, but she's still doing really great things and still producing good music. So I'm going to play y'all one of my favorite tracks that make me feel good from her. This is Lose Control featuring Sierra. We'll be right back. Music make you lose control. Music make you lose control. Let's go. Chubby waist, six legs in shape Rump shaking both ways Make you do a double take Planet rock a showstopper Flow pop a head knocker Beat scholar, tail dropper Do my thing, motherfucker 
Back to Objection to the Rule on Radio Free Brooklyn. And now for our national news segment today, uh, I will be covering a story that is um, on NPR.org. The title is The Justice Department is Pausing Federal Executions After They Resumed Under Trump. And the author is Alana Wise. Attorney General Merrick Garland has imposed a moratorium on scheduling federal executions, the Department of Justice announced on Thursday. The department will review its policies and procedures on capital punishment following a wave of federal executions carried out under the Trump administration. In a memo to the Justice Department, Garland justified his decision to halt the deeply controversial practice, citing factors including its application and outsized impact on people of color. 
Quote, the Department of Justice must ensure that everyone in the federal criminal justice system is not only afforded the rights guaranteed by the Constitution and the laws of the United States, but is also treated fairly and humanely. That obligation has special force in capital cases. And that was um, in a memo that Garland wrote. Um, He also had this to say. Serious concerns have been raised about the continued use of the death penalty across the country, including arbitrariness in its application, disparate impact on people of color, and the troubling number of exonerations in capital and other serious cases. Those weighty concerns deserve careful study and evaluation by lawmakers. Under former President Donald Trump, the federal government carried out its first executions in a gen in a generation last year, with 13 inmates put to death in Trump's final year in office. That included an unprecedented number of federal killings carried out in the last days of his single-term presidency, bucking a nearly century and a half practice of pausing capital punishments during the presidential exchange of power. Then Attorney General William Barr said the executions were being carried out in cases of staggerly brutal murders. Civil rights activists had rallied to spare the lives of those on death row. Concerns on how humanely the sentences could be carried out, as well as the recent exonerations of a number of death row inmates, were major factors in the demonstrations to cease state-sanctioned killings. Quote, the department must take care to scrupulously maintain our commitment to fairness and humane treatment in the administration of existing federal laws governing capital sentences. President Biden, who nominated Garland to the top law enforcement post, opposes capital punishment. During his campaign, he pledged to pass legislation to end the federal death penalty. Some congressional Democrats have been working on such legislation, but no action has been taken. Some progressive and activists opposed to capital punishment have been expressing frustrations that have not seen more movement on the issue from Biden. This is the final quote. A moratorium on federal executions is one step in the right direction, but it's not enough, says Ruth Friedman, who is the director of the Federal Capital Habeas Project. We know the federal death penalty system is married by racial bias, arbitrariness, overreaching and grievous mistakes by defense lawyers and prosecutors that make it a make it broken beyond repair. Friedman said Biden should commute commute all federal death sentences, warning that a pause alone will just leave these intraceable issues unremedied and pave the way for another unconsolable bloodbath that we've seen last year. So yeah, so that is the article. Um, I think that it did a good job kind of uh, giving us um, just kind of like a scope of how you know, a generation long that these were not being carried out by the federal government until Trump came in office. And then he just kind of did a whole bunch of stuff in that last year of his presidency that kind of went under the microscope and it, well, it's going under a microscope now. And we're starting to see that. Uh, I really hope that Biden takes a real stance on this. He'd been super flip floppy with a whole bunch of stuff. And um, these are the things that ultimately, can make a huge impact on the way that we are governed and, and the, the rights that citizens have when it comes to the federal government. So when you said in a generation, so what does that mean? Like when was the last, um, like when were the, ex- the executions last happening? Like what did it, did it say a year? Um, it didn't say specifically the actual number. I'll have to look for that. Um, but it just kind of put it under an umbrella saying that, um, 
there wasn't we didn't hear about this happening under Obama. So that's another eight years. I think they said 13 years. Okay. Um, yeah, I have to double check that. But um, just, you know, from a federal standpoint, I think we're not talking about, you know, state by state here. Yeah, I mean, the death, we talked a little bit about um, the death penalty. I think it was before the current administration was sworn in and the, the man who, um, we went through the details of the crime that he had committed, but he was um, executed. It, like he, Trump was really like rushing to basically okay people being killed like at the last minute um, before he left office, which was pretty gross. And then I keep seeing news stories coming up about like, um, I think South Carolina is trying to bring back the firing squad. Mm for um as a way to execute people oh yes yes um, i think we might have covered that on the show as well i don't yeah and it's like i don't I, I don't think was it alabama there was a place that was trying to use um zyklon b like wow. the same um thing that was used to kill um victims during the holocaust in the gas chambers um, they're trying to bring that back for, yeah, Arizona. So not Alabama it was Arizona is planning, um, to use that gas on death row. It's already allowed in Alabama, California, Mississippi, Missouri, Oklahoma, and Wyoming. Um, so yeah, just very barbaric. Um, and as you mentioned, like, as you know, many have pointed out, like the system is it's very racist. It's very unequal the way that um, death penalty cases are meted out. I just think, you know, we need to get rid of it, period. So the, them pausing it is good, but like we need more than just that because it's firing yeah. squads, like gassing people, like it's it's, in, it's inhumane. And, you know, this is a way for them to continue, you know, allowing state violence against people which I think a lot of times we don't think about this in the greater uh, context of the whole country, you know, pausing it for, you know, from a federal standpoint, but having it okay in certain states is how they get away with this shit. And obviously it ultimately affects, you know, communities of color more. Um, and many times people are on death row for like fucking their whole life. Like it's, it's political prisoners that are on death row. I don't know if you know who Mumia Abdul-Jabal is. Uh-huh, um, yeah. Yeah. People have been trying to free Mumia for like 30, 40 fucking years. You know, he didn't had COVID and survived all this stuff, read books. And he was just a radio yeah. journalist like we are, you know, who was caught up in some, in some stuff. He's been on death row all this time and thank God he hasn't had an execution, but it's like, why, why is this even a thing? Like that doesn't even fit the crime. And in Mumia's case, there wasn't even really a crime, but I guess that's a story for another episode. Yeah. I mean, I don't remember, I say this a lot, but I don't remember where I first heard it. Um, I think it was in the context of some kind of documentary that was about someone who had been accused of something, but it turned out to not really, they hadn't done it. And someone in the documentary was saying, like, we might all be able to say and feel confident that you would never commit a crime. You can't say for sure that you will never be accused of something. And Come on, you know, yes. I, think, I think a lot of people, you know, and we just had the local story about what public defenders are doing, like with them being overloaded and pressuring you to just say, like, yeah, I did it, whatever. You know, it's like 
governments are corrupt. A lot of these systems are corrupt. Like, I think it's easy to kick these things, like kick the can down the road because you think it would never be you or someone that you know, but you really don't know. You know, like at any point, like tables could turn and then suddenly, you know, you're on the wrong side of things politically and you could find yourself like up against somebody's wall about to be shot. So I think it's it's easy to, when you think about it in terms of like, oh, these people are disposable. It doesn't matter what happens to them. But you I think that you really have to start with that, like, you know, be try to find the humanity and be humane towards even people that you think have done horrible things and then kind of work backwards from there. Because if you start off with this assumption, like, I think it just ends up en enveloping more people than you originally think are going to be targeted, like where it could yeah. be you or someone, you know, that gets caught up in some kind of a, you know, case or like you're now being labeled as a terrorist or something like you just never know what might happen. So I think people should wake up and not be numb to these things happening just because you feel like it's only impacting people that you don't have a connection to, you know? Yep. And, you know, these are some old ass, stale ass laws that was created, you know, to murder people of color and anyone that was not white in society. You know, we don't live in that world no more as much as people like to um, continue, you know, being being racist and prejudiced and just ridiculous. Like this world is different now, you know, and these time old laws and ways of living and practices that we're still living under obviously need to change. You know, we need to stop playing God with the justice department. That's not your job. Um, I'm not even quite sure what the justice department's job is to be quite honest with you. Cause it's just all over the fucking place, what they do, but it's definitely not to kill people or decide who needs to die. That is not it. So, um, you know, Congress, they need to get their act together. This is a very serious issue. As you said before, pausing, it does not change the circumstance. It's, it's a gesture, but what we need to do is eradicate the death penalty and make sure that every state is in alignment with that. Cause it can only get better from there. Right. Right. So like if you really want to, like, we just, we have to reimagine what justice is because what we have and what we've had, it, it's not it. It's not this, like, I don't know what the, you know, what the perfect world would look like, but I definitely know what's going on now. It's, it's not rehabilitating anyone. It's not making anybody safer. Um, so yeah, this is, it's a step in the right direction, but like we were both saying, it's definitely not enough. Right. So definitely, you know, if you are passionate about this issue, read up on it, uh, write to your, um, local, you know, officials, let them know what's on your mind, share the information, please. And, you know, have conversations about this with people, because I think people don't talk about it enough. It is definitely a, a touchy topic and it's hard to talk about, but it's really happening to people. People still sitting yeah. around on fucking death row for no reason. And um, it could be, you know, it's very much out of sight, out of mind for a lot of people. And that's a very, very dangerous way to view these issues. Exactly. All right. So we're going to go ahead and take a breath for another music break. Um, yeah, this is our throwback track for today. 
This is from Lenny Kravitz with American Woman. We'll be right back. I got my 
Second woman. Yeah. Hello, this is Jasmine. Just as a reminder, you can follow us on social media. We have a Facebook page and we also have an Instagram account. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash objection radio free BK. No spaces, no punctuation. Our Instagram page is at objection to the rule. All one word, no spaces, and again, no punctuation. Thanks, and here's Teresa. Welcome back to Objection to the Rule on Radio Free Brooklyn. And now we have Jasmine with our international news segment. Okay, so this is a, it's sort of a micro view of a macro story. I'm not sure if you, Reese, have been following a lot with the Olympics and like news about it. Like, have you been following it? I have. I've been in and out of it, but I've been following it a little bit. I'm not sure if I'm aware of this story, though. Okay, yeah. So it wasn't, I, I think the way it was introed off the top sounded like I'm talking about some, an athlete, but it's not. It's actually about an elderly man who's been evicted from his home because of the Olympics twice. Oh, man. Um, so the name, the title of this article is Sad, Lonely Feeling. Tokyo man evicted twice, 50 years apart for Olympic construction. And this article is on Reuters. Um, the author is Elaine Lies or Lies, L-I-E-S. Um, so when Kohei Jino was evicted from his family home to clear the way for the construction of the national stadium for the 1964 Tokyo Olympics, he was sad but proud to contribute to Japan in a moment of national triumph. But when he was evicted again in 2013 at age 80, so the government could rebuild the stadium for the 2020 games, it felt like a bitter twist of fate made worse by what he saw as official indifference. It also forced him and his wife, Yasuko, out of a tight-knit public housing community in the Kasumigaoka neighborhood where they lived for over half a century. It was so hard to leave, said Jeno, now 87. It was the place I'd lived the longest in my life. Jeno hadn't wanted the Olympics in Japan, thinking it too soon to host again, and said the announcement that roughly 200 families, many elderly, were being evicted from their housing complex in the shadow of the stadium came from nowhere. There wasn't any consideration. If there had only been one example of, you're being asked to move, could you please possibly cooperate? Jeno said. Instead, it was pretty much, we're having the Olympics, you need to get out. They moved to another public housing complex, but the old community was shattered. I would really have liked some understanding of how we felt, Jeno said. We've got 170,000 yen, which comes to um, $1,500 USD. What can you do with that? I just had to laugh. It took 1 million yen or 9,000 US dollars to move. A Tokyo city official said 170,000 yen is standard payment in that situation. We're trained to be very polite. There's public housing nearby and officials devised various arrangements, he added, 
declining to be named because he was not authorized to speak to the media. But to somebody who'd lived there a long time, officials probably did seem cold. Tokyo 2020 Olympic organizers declined to comment, noting that the stadium is the responsibility of the Japan Sport Council and the relocation was handled by the Tokyo government in accordance with their laws. The JSC said the relocation was done in consultation with the Tokyo and national governments. Jino, the fourth of nine brothers, was born in Kasumigaoka, not far from what is now the posh Ometesando area in downtown Tokyo. After that house burned in World War II, the family moved 20 meters away, where Jino ran a tobacco shop attached to the family home. Ahead of the 1964 Olympics, they were evicted to make way for the stadium and a surrounding park. The site of their home was paved over, the greenery that blanketed the area cut down, and a nearby river buried in concrete. Jeno washed cars to make ends meet, living with Yasuko and their two children in one tiny room. But in 1965, he moved into the public housing complex and reopened the tobacco shop. I never ran out of people to talk to, he said. I put a bench out, three or four people could sit. Kids would come by with their homework, ask for advice if they got in trouble. After their eviction notice in 2013, they moved in 2016. The move was hard, particularly on Yasuko, who Jeno who said was lonely, depressed. Late in 2018, at 84, she died. Now living with his son in Western Tokyo, Jeno visits the old neighborhood every few months. Across from the gleaming new stadium and just uphill from the site of his now destroyed former home is a small park with a set of Olympic rings where visitors pose and smile for photos. Despite the impact of the games on his life, he hopes they succeed and is saddened that the pandemic has subdued the high spirits that would normally surround them. But visiting the area changed as it is makes his heart pound. I think that I was born here. I was raised here. He said, when I look at the trees along the street that haven't changed at all, I feel nostalgic, but at the same time overflowing with a sad, lonely feeling. So yeah, it was, um, it's, it's really, it's the story of one guy, but one man and his experience. But with the Olympics, I feel like there's a lot that happens and he had, he got evicted and eight years ago, you know, there's a lot of leading up to these games and things that happen to the people that live where they're being hosted that I don't think a lot of people consider like the wider impact outside of um, just being a spectator. Yeah, um, I always think about that too, because I know that a lot of places love to host the Olympics because it brings a lot of income and travelers and visitors. But then when it's all said and done, like what is the space and the people that live there? Like what is the experience once it's all said and done? Right, yeah. And I saw... um... So I don't know if you've been following what happened with Shakari Richardson. Yes, I am. Um, so yeah, that there's the recent issue with her being um, suspended. She might still be able to make the games. I don't know if she's out of all the events. Just I think she's only going to have to miss one uh, for having smoked marijuana. Yeah, she'll miss the event that she was going for, but she could still participate in the relay. 
for the team if they Uh, allow her. Right. So there's that. There's also, um, there had been, it was a bit of, um, I wouldn't say misinformation, but people had been saying that the Tokyo Olympics banned uh, BLM apparel, like Black Lives Matter apparel. But in general, it's a rule that you're not supposed to do any type of political statement at the Olympics period. So it was decided that, you know, that would fall under that category. So there's that. There's you know, people being upset that um, something that's not a performance-enhancing drug can disqualify you. There was a recent um, issue with the swim caps having to be a certain size. So, like, if you're black and you have a big enough afro, like, you're not going to be able to compete unless you cut your hair. Um, and then one of the most troubling is there's a number of black athletes from various African countries, black women, um, like Christine Mboma, Beatrice Masalingi. Um, and there were a few other, like Castor Semenya of South Africa, um, Francine Niosaba from Burundi and Margaret Wambui from Kenya. They were all prevented from competing in the Olympics because their testosterone was too high. Like just their natural levels of testosterone is above some arbitrary limit that has been set. So if unless they sucks. agree to take birth control or some other type of drug to lower their natural hormones, they're not going to be allowed to compete. So like I, I bring that up just to say. I'm not really that into sports, but I know like the Olympics is a really big global thing, but there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot that goes into them or that's embedded in them that I really think people should think about more carefully, like whether it's displacing um, poor people or working people from their homes for like years to build something that's going to be temporary. Um you know, policing people's bodies, particularly Black women's bodies, um, you know, making it so like you can't, you know, and represent, you're representing your country anyway, but you can't make any type of a statement, um, whether it's for human rights or whatever, that's not allowed, like, why not? Um, so yeah, his his story kind of got me thinking about all of that, like, what's the other side of these games that people don't really think of beyond just the spectacle and that's that's a good point you know I think so much goes into these games from an athlete's perspective as well like all the training and everything they have to go through to be prepared you know people train for years for these moments and then something like what happened to Shikari kind of takes all of that time and energy and money and investment and makes it just go away because of some rule And rules, you know, rules are meant to be followed. I'm in no way saying that, um, you know, I don't understand that. And there are consequences for when we break those rules. However, considering Shikari's situation, like she just lost her mom. Um, She's going through a lot. You know, she's a black woman trying to qualify for on the global stage. She did an apology this morning on the Today Show talking about the pressure that she was up under. She's definitely um, become, you know, like America's sweetheart, if you will, over the past couple of weeks. And now, you know, something like, you know, they did make a a point that where she purchased the marijuana from, it was in Oregon, it is legal there. So she did not break any laws in this process. 
um, I'm not saying she should get it passed, but in all, in all actuality, with all of the changes that have been made about marijuana laws in the last year, this is a moment in history where Shakari's story is kind of justifying how these laws victimize people who are just everyday people just trying to live their lives, you know, and it, and it, and it sucks. It sucks that this is happening to her right now in this moment after everything that she went through. I really hope that she is able to qualify and it sucks how these games and these, you know, these world sports really affect communities that people don't hear about. Nobody hears about this man's story unless we tell it, you know, nobody's considering uh, what needs to be done for, for these things, these games to happen. So, um, you know, I just really hope that since we're at a time where we're talking about how we're making changes in in this life around these laws like this that victimize people, that people can really consider the impact, the, the other impact, as you said, that the Olympic Games can have on all types of communities. Right. And I mean, not to mention, we're also still very much in a pandemic. Like I know that um, in certain parts of the U.S., the vaccine numbers are high, but even within the city, like there's parts of Brooklyn that are still at 30 percent vaccination rates with variants. We talked about what's happening in India now with um, so many hundreds of thousands of people dying. Japan's vaccine numbers are not good. You know, so all of this travel international travel happening right now like is it really wise is it safe um we talked about um mr Gino like being for you know el- these are elderly people you know just being uprooted and being given pennies for what you know and i found um i hadn't heard of this organization before but there's a group called uh, no olympics la and their website is uh, N-O-L-Y-M-P-I-C-S-L-A.com. And it's an organization that is against the Olympics being held in Los Angeles, I believe in 2028. And they explain, you know, there's a huge issue with homelessness in L.A. What happens to all those poor people? You know, like, are they, there's so much that happens to beautify an area that means displacing the people that are already there. And there's all of this concerted effort and money and resources put into putting on a show. But then the people that are already there every day of the year struggling, they don't get to see any of that. You know, and it's, I would suggest that people look into it because they talk about, you know, like human rights issues, like issues with poor and working people that are displaced for these games. Um, And I also want to reiterate, you know, a lot of this um, misogynoirist, like, I would say it's like the women are not trans, but it it does come from like a transphobic way of thinking, you know, being like, you know, having this bioessentialist that you, if you have this much of this hormone in your body, you're not, you don't count as a woman. And, you know, seeing so many Black women being targeted by that, it's really disgusting. So, yeah, I mean, uh, rules come from an ideology, like they come from somewhere, like they should be questioned. And just because we're used to something happening every four years in a certain way doesn't mean it has to continue that way. Um, I saw one suggestion, like, why not just have the games permanently in Greece? I'm like, hey, I mean, I know they're often struggling financially, like, and that's where they originated, you know, why not have something that's just like a permanent place where people gather to compete instead of having this like, 
erecting these things that end up being super wasteful. I'm sure they generate a lot of trash that right. goes into a landfill, pushing people out, you know, just for a moment. Is it really worth it? Exactly. Oh, man. All right. Well, I'm sure we'll have more conversations um, about the Olympics as they will get underway this month. Before we start, I meant to mention also, it's there's it's a 56-page report, and it's called Economic Impact Analysis on Olympic Host Cities. And the author is Michael P. Overmeyer from Grand Valley State University. So it's a report that goes through, because a lot of people just think like, oh, hosting the Olympics, that must be great. But it really breaks down like, once you go through all of the different types of costs, what is the real impact in the long run to these places? So I would encourage people to also check that out. You can Google it. I will also put it on our um, Facebook page and on our Instagram page um, so that you can check it out as well as the other links that I mentioned. Cool. Thank you so much. You always do so good at providing that background information for people to continue to learn and, um, you know, engage with these stories. All right. So for our final story today, this one comes from uh, kissfm.iheart.com. That's right. I had to look really hard for some good news this week. Uh, but this is a good one. And this story is uh, all California public school students will have access to free breakfast and lunch. And the author is uh, Ruby G. So good news for students in California. All students now qualify for free breakfast and lunch regardless of income. The new state budget will allocate $650 million for universal school meal program, allowing all school students, public school students, that is, in California to receive these free meals. Previously, parents and guardians had to provide income information in order for students to qualify for free or reduced breakfast and lunch. Now that will no longer be the case. Um, and what's so great about this story is uh, it actually was um, something that, happened during the pandemic that stayed in California. I don't know if you guys remember uh, when the pandemic first started and people were trying to figure out, um, you know, the schooling for children, but the schools were still giving out lunches in the neighborhoods, even though that they were not able to have people in the building. So -hmm. this is one of those things that you've seen evolve because it's like, well, why not do this? You know, why not provide, you know, breakfast and lunch for students? Because, you know, let's face it, raising children is hard. Um, and just trying to get them there on time, make sure they are ready for class. A lot of parents struggle with that, with time management, with uh, getting resources, having enough if they have multiple children. Um, and, you know, even just the lunch situation as well. It's the middle of the day. The kids need to eat. So I think this is a really uh, positive thing. I really hope that this sets a precedent for other schools and other, other um, states in the nation to really consider how this can greatly impact communities of children that have to go to school. Um, I think it's a good move for parents who, who struggle um, in, in any kind of way. And even if they're not struggling, this is just one more thing that makes public schools uh, more suitable for its students. Um, so yeah, um, great job, California. Another, another win for you. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I never really 
I got free lunch as a child and I really, it's so depressing when you would see these stories about kids having lunch debt. Like there should have never been such a thing. Right. That's so sad. Like that's so ghoulish and disgusting. And there would be news stories about people who would volunteer to pay and then they would be denied the ability to pay. You know, it's like, no, like it's just so punitive and like how you can't learn if you're hungry Right. You know, That's you right. can't grow properly if you're hungry and people are struggling out here. Like, And it's so divisive, you know, from a from a child standpoint, when you see that you can tell if your friends ain't right. You can tell if they are hungry or, you know, kids sharing their lunch. You know, when I was growing up, I got free lunch, too, but I was so picky. My mother had to pack my lunch every day because I just wouldn't eat that crap. But, you know, that little cheese sandwich and applesauce and, you know, Doritos or whatever I had. If I had to share it, I would, but I'm so grateful that I had a parent that had the time and the resources to provide for me, but there's so many people who do not. So I think this is just one of those things that, you know, really helps out, not just the kids, but also the parents and the whole, you know, um, mission of public school to get these kids ready to be out here growing strong and, and be active participants in their life and in society. So, um, Definitely good news. And I really hope that, like I said, that this is a wave that the rest of the country follows. Because why not? Why not? What, you know, if it's possible in California, it's fucking possible anywhere. Okay. Yeah. I mean, if anything, the pandemic has shown us like how vulnerable we all are and how little support there is ingrained like in our country for children. And like people really depend on schools to be like that middle ground between the parents and the family and like being able to go to work and everything. So the more support that you can provide for kids within the school system, the better. Exactly. Food disparity should not be a thing in this country and anywhere else for that matter. So, um, yeah, shout out Cali. I love that state, man. I love that state. I know you do. (laughs) I mean, I I've visited a few times. My best friend is out there and I'll go see her, but I I don't like to drive. So California won't, won't see me for too long at any one time. Well, I don't know. I'm foreshadowing for my future here. So we'll see what happens, but um, yeah. So I guess that's it for this week's objection to the rule. Thank you so much for listening. You can catch all of our older episodes on radio free Brooklyn. Um, app or on the website or on Spotify. Listen up for more independent Brooklyn media and Jasmine is going to give us our last track of the day. Yeah, I am. And before I do that, just a reminder, our Facebook page is facebook.com forward slash objection radio free BK. Our Instagram is at objection to the rule. And I was going to do one song, but I, I changed my mind. So this is a song that um, it's very old. Um, but the first story we did about public defenders reminded me of a movie, American Violet, and this track is used in that film in the soundtrack. And also, you know, today is the 4th of July. Um, a lot of people think of it or associate it with freedom in different types of ways. As we know, a lot of people were not free in the U.S. at that time and are still not free now. Um, But this song is by Nina Simone, and it's called I Wish I Knew How It Would Feel to Be Free. 
So I'd like to leave you all on that note. And again, thank you so much for listening and enjoy your day off. If you have a day off, Um, keep your head up if you don't. And we'll talk to you next week. Bye. Bye, everyone. to be me then you'd see